Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. A recent study from Harvard Medical School, published as an accepted paper in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, sought to quantify healthcare utilization and costs associated with sleep disorders. It's tens of billions of dollars, an amount that the study authors believe could be reduced by improving the diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders. Let's welcome the authors to Talking Sleep. Dr. Phil Hewitt is a sleep medicine fellowship-trained otolaryngologist who serves as the director of sleep surgery at Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. And Dr. Neil Bhattacharya is a professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, at Harvard, and a physician and surgeon at Mass Eye and Ear. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much for the invite. So talk to me about your paper. What made you want to look into this topic? Maybe I'll take that, Phil? Sure. So uh, I have uh, somewhat of a background and interest in economics of various clinical diagnoses, and I've uh, published a few other studies, primarily in the, you know, in the ENT space about chronic sinusitis and otitis media. Uh, and uh, Phil and I uh, sit across from each other, our offices are next to each other, and uh, with the new coding system that came out with ICD-10, I had been wanting to look at sleep disorders in general, but the new coding system... Uh, because most, not all of course, but most of the codes were grouped under uh, a more specific three-digit type. It allowed us to apply some of the previous uh, study methodologies that I've used to sleep medicine. And then I had a young, eager guy, Phil Hewitt over here, who was uh, starting his career in sleep medicine. I said, this is a great great way to make a name for yourself and do a service to the uh, discipline to try to figure out how much this is costing us and what the epidemiology and impact is. So, you know, that's great. We've seen other studies that have looked at the costs of sleep disorders. So what makes this study different? I guess a couple of things I would say. First of all, this is a nationally representative study. We're looking at the household uh, level, and it doesn't rely on patients coming to the clinic and asking them how much they're spending or how long they've been using CPAP. It doesn't rely on the the data from a single institution like Harvard Medical School or University of Pittsburgh or whatever institution you want to speak about. This is nationally representative data. Uh, So we're really getting a cross-sectional sampling of the entire United States. I think also a, a couple of unique aspects of our data include some of the deeper dives into office visits and both direct, you know, healthcare expenses at the prescription level and at the patient out-of-pocket uh, uh, cost level. Maybe, Phil, you have any other? Yeah, so I think it's not. First of all, it was a, an honor to get to work with Dr. Bhattacharya. I spent all of my training <laughs> reading his dozens, if not hundreds, of, of uh, articles. And he, he truly is a bona fide expert in national database-type research. I think the issue is not that being different from other studies is good or bad. I think the overall message is that uh, multiple study methodologies have clearly demonstrated the same thing, and that's that there is a significant increased cost associated with sleep disorders. And so other studies have used other types of database, other types of modeling systems. They've been done in different countries. They've been done on specific sleep disorders. They've looked at direct and indirect costs. So each one has 
you know, a slightly different spin on it. But like I said, the overall message is, is fairly clear. Uh, and that's why I love the title of Dr. Wickwire's commentary that there, there is no question about it. Sleep disorders increase healthcare costs. And so I think that's the most important overall message. So was this all based on Medicare data then? So, uh, no, uh, this is actually uh, a national database that is administered by the National Center of Healthcare Statistics. Uh, and it's uh, all comers. It includes Medicare, uh, includes Medicaid, it includes private insurance. What would what we would not capture necessarily with this is uh, a federal group of patients. For example, uh, veterans are not included in this database. So that's, uh, you know, I think yet another strength of the study, it's not just insured patients coming to a sleep disorders clinic. It's it's a, a, a very wide swath uh, cutting through the entire United, just about the entire United States population. Oh, wow. So tell me, what were your findings? Well, I think the, the critical finding, uh, which is the number that is probably going to be put out there, is that overall, if you look at the direct health care costs associated with sleep disorders, defined by the ICD-10 code of G47.X uh, using a very conservative estimate of sleep disorder prevalence of 5.6%, uh, that we spend about $95 billion on sleep disorders as direct medical costs. And so that would include costs related to the sleep disorder itself, like the cost of your CPAP machine or uh, your modafinil, uh, but it would also capture, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, the cost of other medical problems that are influenced by the sleep disorder itself. So if you have a bad insomnia patient whose anxiety is difficult to control as a consequence of that insomnia, that would be included here. If you had a, a bad hypertensive on three or four medications because they're not treating their sleep apnea, that would be included in this as well. So the direct costs associated with sleep disorders is tremendously high at $95 billion. But if you break it down, like Neil mentioned, uh, we also reported not just on total healthcare expenses, but on prescriptions, pres uh, money spent on prescriptions, and a number of other things as well, emergency room visits. Yeah, I would agree absolutely, Phil, that, that those are the take-home points. I think, uh, I think a couple of uh, other things I would emphasize in terms of the data we provide, if you, you know, I don't want to go and say, look at table two to the readership uh, or the audience, but, you know, we do provide data on incremental increases in office visits. For example, patients with sleep disorders visit the office, ambulatory setting office 16 times in a calendar year versus almost nine times. So that's an incremental increase of, you know, eight visits for a sleep disorder patient. Uh, that's a lot of time commitment for them. That, so there's an indirect, there's a direct cost to that office visit, but of course there's an indirect cost for them taking, you know, half a day off, you know, driving to the clinic, being seen for something either related to sleep disorders or the sleep disorder itself. Well, and so, I love this more. It, it's it's all encompassing, right? It's not just the test and the treatment and the clinic visit, right? It's it's you're taking it a little bit more downstream, the things that are directly influenced by the sleep disorder. Exactly, and as as Dr. Hewitt points out, uh, you know, if your hypertension is more difficult to manage because of your sleep disorder, we're gonna capture that in the form of, you know, either the direct costs or the office visits or both. So why do you think sleep disorders are so expensive? 
Well, the first thing, which is perhaps a limitation of the study, is that that a sleep disorder is not a single entity, right? There's what eighty-three disorders in ICS, uh, ICSD ten, um, and so this is more than just one sleep disorder. Um, I think there it's a reflection of the fact that sleep is important. It affects multiple aspects of your health, both quality of life in the short term and uh, and long-term well-being. And again, this has been shown time and time again in the literature. I would just add, I think sleep disorders are expensive, uh, as Dr. pointed out earlier, uh, in that they also entrain and intensify or make worse a lot of comorbid conditions. So I think wrapped up in, in, in the, you know, the incremental costs of, of something on the order of, you know, $7,000 per patient per year associated with sleep disorders, that includes some of these additional worsened comorbidities. So if I'm trying to compare, you know, apples to apples, so how do these costs compare to other medical conditions? Yeah, so it's funny you ask. I was just in the operating room before this, and I was talking about the paper with the, the staff, and I played a little game, and I read this as one of the paragraphs in the, the discussion. I said, uh, the cost for hypertension from the same data set, so same methodology, cost of hypertension, $55 billion, $37.2 billion for asthma, $9.2 billion for migraine headaches, and $5.8 billion for heart failure. And I pose the question to them that what do you think the cost of sleep disorders are? And they, they guessed, you know, half a billion, a billion, something like that. And when I told them it was $95 billion, you know, their mouths fell open because it's an underappreciated area of, in, uh, of medicine, I think. Yeah, for sure. And, it's, and it really is kind of... Um, mind boggling when you get into numbers that big. And yet, you know, we lack that urgency, don't we, with sleep disorders, right? And and I think part of it is this culture of I'll sleep when I'm dead, or Ugh, I don't want to go to a sleep lab, I don't want to have a CPAP. So how do we how do we handle this? I mean, how do we? What do we do about this? Well, I think there's, um, there's a lot of things that need to be done. And this is not new information. We need more people to go into sleep medicine as a field. Uh, I'm a, a sleep otolaryngologist and there's very few of us. And so we're trying to actively recruit more and more people to do this every year. And I think pulmonologists, neurologists, psychiatrists should all do the same because there's a tremendous need. Uh, there needs to be better awareness and training. Uh, I don't remember learning anything about sleep disorders in medical school. Uh, in an otolaryngology residency, I was fortunate to be uh, at a program that has uh, a dual-boarded sleep otolaryngologist. So sort of by sheer luck, I was exposed to it. Um, and then uh, on the other side, the patient side, we need to improve awareness of these sleep disorders and, and the impact that they have on people's lives. And that's, that's why papers like this, I think, are important. They're good for our field and they're good for that, that effect that I just mentioned we see in the OR, that people are shocked that uh, sleep disorders have this kind of impact financially, let alone all of the other issues, quality of life and long-term health. Well, and it's kind of interesting that you that you talk about needing to improve the sleep medicine pipeline, right? Like we've talked about this quite a bit. And I wonder if we, you know, when you talk about improving awareness, I mean, sure, there's public awareness, right? Improving that that aspect of it. 
But then I also wonder about partnering with our primary care folks and our dental group, you know, our, our dental colleagues um, and try to improve their awareness too. And it's not to your point, right? Like there's a lot of disorders. <laughs> it's not just sleep apnea and we are not just OSA specialists, right? Like there, there's a ton of other sleep disorders. Um, and so maybe we need to do better in terms of, of sharing that information with people outside of our own echo chambers. Yeah. And I, I, um, I feel for primary care physicians, there's just so much to know. So ask for help when, when someone's sleepy or they're not sleeping, ask for help. It's what we're here for. Uh, and I think we have a, a great group of primary care physicians in the Boston area. The number one complaint I hear from their end is that there's not enough of you. And we're talking, this is Boston, Massachusetts. There's probably 80 sleep medicine doctors, maybe more. And each of us has a, a wait list to get in of months. And, you know, this is not uh, a huge, a densely populated area uh, for the number of physicians that we have. But um, how about North Dakota and other parts of the countries where you don't have as many folks as we do in Boston? So there's just a tremendous demand. And um, uh, it's not always the lack of recognition by primary care physicians. It's that sometimes there's just nowhere to send them. Well, and I think that's it, right? Like, can you empower your primary care physicians to kind of take that first, you know, bite at the apple, right? Like somebody who is just, you know, this guy is sleep apnea. And can we empower our primary care docs to order like a home test? And then if it's not straightforward, then, you know, maybe offshoot to sleep medicine, you know, and, and, I, and I would hope that we have that messaging that we are here to collaborate you know, because hearing what you're saying, you guys have 80 sleep dogs. I think we have like 10 or 12 and two are leaving that I know of. Yeah, <laughs> so. I, I, bet, I bet we have more. I mean, I think Brigham and, and Beth Israel alone, their sleep divisions have probably 60 between the two of them. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I would, I would, you know, I would add to echo exactly what Phil has said, but I, I think I would look at this. Uh, let me first say that I loved Phil's uh, commentary about, you know, tossing around a number in the OR and, and seeing what the what the order and finding that people were and these are healthcare uh, workers they're you know kind of more than an order of magnitude off in terms of the cost so i mean in medicine you know things get attention when it's certainly at the medicare you know governmental level when they cost a lot of money because medicare is going to look for ways to reduce costs uh, as are all insurers and i think this this is a big number i mean this is a very large number and and it's a chronic condition. So we're not talking about the diagnosis of this and then the treatment of it like, oh, how much does acute sinusitis cost? Oh, we treat it with antibody, it goes away. This is a condition that can is often, you know, decades, if not lifelong. So this is a a staggering number on a year to year basis and a per patient basis. So I would just say really briefly three things about you know, you ask the question, what do we need to do? I think this is a big number that merits attention for governmental funding uh, and grants and research into how to, you know, uh, lower these costs and treat sleep apnea effectively. I think it's a call to uh, prevention. I mean, some I, I believe, and Phil, you can comment about this, you know, with the obesity epidemic and, and other factors, some of these sleep disorders are likely preventable uh, at a population, you know, hopefully it's easier said than done on a population basis. Um, and then I think we have to, we have to maybe try to look for cures. I mean, when you take the, you know, uh, I think the number was, uh, 
uh, 7,000 per year and you multiply that out for 20, 30 years, uh, if we can find something that, I mean, it's again, high, high, uh, lofty, great, lofty fruit, so to speak, uh, if there's some, you know, can't prevent it, if we can cure it or treat it better, you know, there's a significant cost savings to the system. So you're saying improving the diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders would then decrease costs, right? So, you know, because initially the pushback is, oh my gosh, everyone's going to have a test and that's going to cost so much money. But your argument is kind of the opposite, right? You identify it, you diagnose it, you treat it, and then you have downstream savings. That definitely could be the outcome for not just sleep apnea, but for other, if we develop, you know, if there's a drug pipeline that helps the other sleep disorders, um, and you can take it off the table, so to speak, and then they're, they sleep better, their work productivity increases, their comorbidities uh, and their severity goes down, uh, you know, the vicious cycle, they lose weight, then their hypertension gets better. Uh, there are a lot of downstream positive effects, monetary and otherwise. Well, and you hadn't even hit on those indirect costs, like you're talking about presenteeism, absenteeism, right? Right. So what, what is your take-home message? Well, I think uh, before I offer a take-home message, I will point out two more things, one of which you just mentioned. Uh, so not only did we use an extremely conservative estimate for the prevalence of sleep disorders at 5.6%, which we all know that many sleep disorders alone have a baseline prevalence of three, four, five, ten times that. And so uh, not only do we use a low prevalence estimate, we also only used folks who were diagnosed with sleep disorders. So we know that non-diagnosis and therefore non-treatment is a huge problem in this country. Those people are effectively diluting out uh, the cohort who we said did not have a sleep disorder because of the methodology. So the difference between those with and without sleep disorders is probably in reality much bigger. And then the last thing that you mentioned is that direct healthcare costs are, are only the tip of the iceberg, that uh, David Hillman's group uh, has written a number of papers looking at, at overall costs of, of sleep disorders and estimates that only about 2% of the costs of sleep disorders are direct healthcare costs. So that's what we're talking about is just the 2%. Uh, so what about the other 98%? Uh, that number is, is tremendous, obviously. That's a that's a crazy number. Yeah, we didn't even put it in the paper <laughs> because it w seemed fictional. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, and I think that's the difference, right, in our field that everybody needs to sleep, right? It's not like diabetics need the certain care and people with heart disease need the certain care, right? It's all of us need to sleep. That's right. Exactly. If you said there was a condition that 5% or 5.6% of the people couldn't walk, there, there'd be, you know, people who jumping up and down. Everybody needs to walk. I think generally, uh, everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs to sleep. And if you, this is, this is a, a real, you know, I think our study has identified a real fiscal, uh, and, uh, epidemiologic problem that, you know, it, it bears fruit at, at the ground level. A real central question, I think from our data is, and we would love to do a deeper dive on this and we may be able to for future studies is, Okay, you have someone newly diagnosed with uh, sleep apnea, and you treat them with PAP therapy. You know, do their incremental healthcare costs truly go down, uh, or maybe it's a wash because they have to come in for 
CPAP assessment, titrations, uh, follow-up sleep studies, other problems, and there's the continued cost of, of uh, PAP therapy? Or do you get the benefit of decreased comorbidities from treating their OSA select, um, successfully? And I think there are a lot of unanswered questions in a big number this. And, and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be that interesting to study if we found that it was a $10 billion a year diagnosis. But a $100 billion a year diagnosis and treatment, that, that there's got to be some fat, so to speak, that can be trimmed and some efficiencies, efficiencies that can be garnered in such a big number. Well, I think it kind of hits on what you had talked about earlier, awareness, right? And, and so, yes, awareness of sleep disorders, but to this very specific point that sleep disorders are expensive and that it's really important to identify and to treat. And it's not just about, you know, snoring or CPAP or anything like that. It, it's truly this fundamental thing that we need to change. Absolutely. And we haven't even really talked about when do they get diagnosed? Do they get diagnosed uh, when they're potentially mild and get on appropriate treatment, surgical or otherwise? Or do they have a delay in diagnosis? Their BMI creeps up even more. They accrue additional comorbidities. And now they're diagnosed when they're, you know, the high, moderate, low, severe. You know, there are going to be different costs to that. So I, I absolutely agree. There's a, there, there, the numbers would strongly suggest a real fundamental relook at how we, you know, diagnose and treat uh, sleep disorders. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll get into a deeper discussion about this study and its implications. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at AASM.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. I'm talking to doctors Philip Hewitt and Neil Bhattacharya about their recent study, Incremental Healthcare Utilization and Expenditures for Sleep Disorders in the United States, published as an accepted paper in JCSM. So it seems like we've had a lot of negative stuff about pap therapy recently, right? We had that AHRQ prelim report and then the recall. Um, which seems to be this gift that keeps giving. <laughs> so um, does this paper change things? Uh, I think yes and no. Uh, this just helps reemphasize what many of us already knew. I mean, it's preaching to the choir, really, the fact that this is the ASM uh, podcast. We know that sleep disorders are important. We see it every day that treating them makes a difference. And that's why it's a tough pill to swallow when you see some of these uh, papers that fail to show a difference uh, in, you know, fill in the blank with and without CPAP. Um, and then these other more recent hits to CPAP have, have been a huge problem as well. As a, a sleep otolaryngologist, I, I not only manage sleep disorders and, and the medical side of sleep apnea with CPAP and other things, I see the surgical side as well, and uh, I'll tell you that there's a lot more people who are looking into surgical treatments because of uh, the issues with CPAP over the last couple months. And so uh, even though I'm a little bit conflicted in that, uh, in my interests, I think that uh, this is one in the win column for, for sleep disorders and treating sleep apnea for sure. 
So that, so do you think we can extrapolate these findings then for all treatment options, like you're talking about, you know, hypoglossal nerve stimulation, oral appliance therapy? Well, I think that's what uh, Neil was dancing around earlier, that, you know, if if with, you know, odds ratio product or endotyping and these things, we can improve the efficiency of diagnosing sleep apnea and identifying what people are going to respond to the best and get them into that treatment right away so that A, they adhere to it and adhere to it for the rest of their life, uh, and B, they keep coming back, um, that maybe it it is worthwhile to take the plunge early and implant someone who you know is going to be a home run for hypoglossal nerve stimulation or, um, you know, a, a young guy with big tonsils or maxillomandibular hypoplasia. Maybe they should have a tonsillectomy or maxillomandibular advancement uh, early on in the process. And so our, our study certainly does not get at those issues at all. Um, this is extrapolating through the work of others who have shown that, that treating sleep apnea and other sleep disorders uh, can have a, a financial impact. Um, so yeah, to be clear, that's not shown in our study, um, but supported by the work of others. So it's funny that you talked about that, um, you know, because the ASM released a position statement on um, surgery and surgical referrals and so on and so forth. And basically the take home was, you know, CPAP first, right? But if they're having trouble with CPAP, yes, send to the surgeon earlier, right? The bariatric surgeon, if their BMI, you know, is above 35 and, you know, to the to the otolaryngologist or the oral maxofacial surgeon. Um, but I, I kind of wonder now, now that all of a sudden PAP has sort of this asterisk beside it. I have wondered if, if y'all are seeing more surgical referrals. Yeah, so I listened to your podcast on uh, highlighting that clinical practice guideline, and I was surprised that, that Dave and Jeff said that both said that they weren't seeing an increase in referrals. Um, or, or I guess perhaps I'm not seeing an increase in referrals, but I'm seeing a different theme uh, where more and more people who were maybe considering moving on from CPAP uh, were pushed over the edge, either because their CPAP is recalled and it's effectively being taken away from them and not replaced, or now they're suspicious about inhaling what may or may not be even in their ResMed uh, unit. And so I've seen a, a big uptick in people whose reason for moving on from CPAP because I agree with the clinical practice guidelines that CPAP is unequivocally the first-line treatment option of choice. Even if you have massive tonsils, we should still start with CPAP. But the indication for moving on from CPAP is, is shifting to more of these people just don't want to be on CPAP as a consequence of the recall. And I've absolutely seen that. You'd kind of hit on um, the limitations of your study. Tell me a little bit more about that. What were the limitations? Well, I think it's, you know, every study, is, as you point out, has some limitations. Uh, I think Phil pointed out perhaps the, the biggest one and that we're, is that we're really looking at direct costs, which are indeed a tip of the iceberg, but you have to start somewhere. Um, we did kind of group all of the sleep diagnoses as necessary because to pr preserve patient confidentiality, basically, they're grouped together under the big heading. So we can't really parse out OSA, uh, you know, versus uh, sleep uh, fragmentation versus insomnia, uh, et cetera. Um, 
you know, we'd love to have more granular data than in that and start looking at the subsets. So maybe we could decide where to do the research and where to spend the money if we're going to improve. Um, I think those are the two biggest uh, 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 limitations. Phil, do you, have, do you have any other thoughts? Uh, yeah. So the as I mentioned, the decreased prevalence number, the fact that you required a, a diagnosis be entered into the system uh, in order to be captured under G47.x. And then also not all sleep disorders fit nicely under G47.x, which is, again, a reflection of the history of sleep disorders that they're so diverse in, in background, neurology, psychiatry, and so forth. And so there's many major sleep disorders that are very common. For instance, all of the insomnia subtypes are not G47. anything. They're, they're a different code. And so those aren't even captured here. So you kind of talked about um, Emerson Wickwire earlier, and, and he's done a lot of this work, right? Like he's studied a lot of the economic impact of sleep disorders, and he wrote the commentary to this paper. So um, tell me what he said and, and what is your response? Well, I think he was very complimentary, and uh, perhaps it's because half of the citations in our paper come from him because <laughs> between him and uh, David Hellman, they, they literally write all of these papers. And uh, I think perhaps they're they're excited and welcoming of a, a paper written from another group, perhaps outsiders, uh, us being a pair of otolaryngologists. Um, and I, I think he nicely points out that we're all fighting on the same team here, and it's just yet another study that demonstrates through a different methodology that that uh, sleep disorders are costly. Uh, but he, he very appropriately points out all of the limitations that we just did. So I think his commentary was uh, very nice and, and flattering and, and pointed out where we fell short uh, and appropriately so. Yeah, I thought, I thought he, he did a nice job. And I mean, he usually, he, he always does anyway. So tell me what's next. Are you, are you going to do a follow-up study? It's a secret. We can't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you're it, not it, even gonna like plant the seed. Well, we want to tackle. I think uh, what Dr. Wickwire uh, points out, and and others have pointed out these these indirect costs. We're trying to think up some methodology here that we can get at least you know within striking distance, so to speak, of these indirect costs. Again, on a national level, across many different you know socioeconomic groups, demographic groups, uh, insurance subtypes. So we're working on that. Uh, it's not easy. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not, again, for many of the reasons that, you know, sleep, sleep disorders have, are somewhat of this, you know, this aggregate uh, in different disciplines and different diagnosis codes. But I think that's what we're trying to tackle next, whether we'll be successful and get another podcast with you, Seema, uh, to be determined. You know, I, and I want to point something out. You said something about being outsiders. And I, I hope you guys don't feel that way. You know, we really want to make sure that like, like Emerson says, right, we're all in the same sandbox and we absolutely welcome you as our colleagues under our little sleep umbrella. Well, thank you. And Neil is the outsider. I'm a dues paying ASM <laughs> member. <laughs> I, well, and I, I'll tell you a little sidelight to that, Seaman. When we did this, when I approached Phil with this study, you know, um, uh, you know, Phil has the clinical expertise and, and the boots on the ground expertise. I have kind of the epidemiology and, and cost background and, and statistical expertise. So it was, it was a it was a good match. But I told him, I said, you know, Phil, let's let's put this in the ENT literature. It'll it, it'll it'll probably be a slam dunk. We don't have good sleep uh, articles in our 
literature, pretty, I don't want to say everything, anything you put in is going to get pulled, but it's going to at least get high consideration. And Phil says, you know, this is, this is pretty good data. We, you know, we should, we should take a stab at putting it out there for a broader appeal. Uh, and to his credit, you know, he, uh, he did, uh, the, um, majority of the work in, in getting this published. And I, I think he's, you know, not tooting our own, own horn a little bit, but I appreciate you're saying we're not outsiders, but Phil, you know, really, um, emphasize the need to get this out to, uh, to, to hopefully all sleep conditions. And I think it'll have an implic bigger impact. Yeah. I think the, the journal, journal of clinical sleep medicine has been very open to otolaryngology authorship. So we certainly appreciate that. No, that was fantastic. So any final thoughts? Sleep is important. If, uh, <laughs> <laughs> allow for an eight-hour sleep opportunity every night, and if you're doing that and you still are having trouble falling asleep or you're sleepy during the day, uh, get it checked out because it's uh, an important and costly problem, and potentially. Final, final thoughts for the sleep medicine community. I mean, you're tackling a problem that is, you know, uh, as severe cost-wise and epidemiology-wise and uh, healthcare resource consumption-wise you know, up there with hypertension, you know, heart disease, COPD, these are big numbers. So uh, you should be proud. So I think for, for us in the sleep world, we've always known that sleep disorders are really important to identify, to diagnose and to treat. Um, and it feels like that message has been kind of lost with the recall and the AHRQ reports. So it's really nice to see some positive, objective evidence that you know, A, what we do matters, and not just in terms of quality of life and sleepiness and that sort of thing, but, you know, B, this is objectively, this can be quantified with reduced healthcare expenditures for patients who have sleep disorders that have been treated. So I really appreciate you coming and, and talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>